Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. And on episode 82, I'm going to be speaking later with Pam McNeil from Disability Responsiveness New Zealand. We have talked to Pam before as she was getting her business up and running. It's been a while since we caught up with her and Pam's ready to tell us about some workshops that she's doing. Also, some material involving accessible and inclusive meetings and empowerments that are available for you to purchase from her website at drnz.co.nz. We have a lot of listener comments to go through as well. We'll be talking the importance of Braille, we'll look at cryptocurrency, and we'll discuss when or whether it is ever appropriate for a sighted person to give up a seat for a blind person on a bus or train, or is it ever appropriate for them not to? There are lots of things to discuss, and if you want to be in touch with the podcast, we love that. The email address is theblindside at mosin.org. That's theblindside at mosin.org. And the feedback line number in the United States is 719-270-5114. That's 719-270-5114. And just as I was about to press the publish button on this podcast, something happened that caused me to redo this introduction. That doesn't happen often. But you will recall that we ran a big piece on the blind side some time ago about an attempt by the Canadian General Standards Board to impose extraordinarily draconian standards on service animals in Canada. There was a loud reaction, as there should have been to this. A number of U.S. guide dog schools chimed in and said it would be very difficult for them to comply with these standards and therefore to supply Canadians with guide dogs should these standards be adopted. I was proud that the Blindside podcast was able to play a small part in disseminating the danger of these standards and precisely what they contained. And some Canadians were galvanised and they got together and they advocated and they lobbied and they started talking some sense and websites were formed and Facebook groups were formed and email lists were formed and the lobbying really got underway. And today, as we publish this podcast, they have had a much-deserved victory with the Canadian General Standards Board advising the members of the committee that was assembled to look at these standards for service animals that there will not be any such standards. They are disbanding the committee. The standards project for service animals is over. It is going to be important for users of legitimate service animals to acknowledge the public's concerns and fears about all and sundry calling their animals service animals when they are not appropriately behaved and not appropriately trained. And of course, it is going to be important to recognise that that's a legitimate concern and find ways of acknowledging it. But the point is that such a draconian standard was never the right way to go about it in terms of what was in the standard and the way that the standard was being put together. Congratulations. I am so proud of everybody who had some role to play in this victory. These moments of advocacy triumph are truly beautiful. They are sweet. And they go to show to all of us that we don't have to sit idly by while life happens to us. If we believe in something firmly enough, if we organize, if our cause is right, and if our argument is sound, we can change things. We can make the world a better place. Warm congratulations to everyone in Canada who did anything at all to make this justified outcome happen. We've had a lot of messages and emails coming in over the last week 
on the subject of Braille. And I'm going to read a selection of them and play a selection of them. If I didn't get to yours, please know that it is valued. There are just so many of them, and I really appreciate that. I had mixed reactions when I saw all of this influx of uh, comment on Braille. Part of me said, what a shame it is that we feel we have to talk about something as fundamental as our literacy, because so many people undervalue it. So many people think these days that a computer that talks or a phone that talks or a talking book player that plays books is sufficient. And those of us who value Braille and literacy know that it is not. And I thought, well, what a shame it is that in 2018, we still have to come to the defense of Braille or sing Braille's praises so much. But then I thought about it from another perspective. Over the last few years, as you'll know, if you've been following The Blind Side, I've become a regular practitioner of meditation. I try to meditate for at least 30 minutes every day, and I find it helps me a lot and it keeps me grounded. And as part of that meditation journey, one of the things I do is keep a gratitude journal. And I try to think of all the things that I'm grateful for. And I would like to hope that if I were sighted, I would also be grateful for the fact that I can pick up a book and read it and be exposed to so much of the world's knowledge. So let's take a look at some of the feedback that we've received on Braille. Here's Ian Lackey from the UK who says, Hello, Jonathan. As someone who has been using Braille for the best part of 60 years, I suspect it will come as no surprise to learn that I am a supporter. As a totally blind person, I had no other option than to learn Braille. It was that or nothing. However, I feel that my relationship with Braille has had a rebirth since I at last bit the bullet and shelled out for a Braille display two years ago. For a long time, I put off the decision, mainly by resorting to the argument that Braille displays are too expensive. However, having made the fateful decision, I now cannot imagine how I could get by without my trusty focus. For me, hard copy Braille is almost now a thing of the past. There is no more hauling heavy volumes down to the post office or having large paper magazines coming through my door at regular intervals. One thing which surprised me was that even with only a 14-cell display, reading fluency is not greatly diminished, if at all. As far as reading books is concerned, I am finding that my consumption of audiobooks has fallen, while the actual number of books I have read has increased. I would much rather read a book on my display than read it audibly. No allied to technologies now available, there is no reason why the future of Braille cannot be brighter than it has ever been. Long live Braille indeed. Hi, Jonathan. I'm Tiffany from Kentucky. I just had a comment on this week's podcast. Um, When you were reading the email from Marissa and talking about uh, the importance of you know, learning Braille and using Braille and having it in your daily life. And I completely agree. I was fortunate enough uh, to have a wonderful vision teacher who taught me Braille at an early age. And now I use it every day for labeling things around the house. I have a Braille display that I use by itself. And I like to hook it up to my phone through Bluetooth on the iPhone and read and use Braille that way. And I just can't imagine not having that experience and not having Braille in my life and what that would be like. Hi Jonathan, it's Carolyn speaking. Just had to respond to Marissa's question and I could talk forever on this topic. 
Not learning Braille as a child with low vision has led to a number of different consequences for me as an individual. I learnt Braille as an adult. But firstly, the methods of teaching low vision children to read in my day, the 1970s, has meant that many of us in my generation have rounded shoulders, bad posture and suffer from shoulder, neck and back pain as a result of all those hours of leaning over books with strong magnification. Braille enables you to sit up and have decent posture and that's a major advantage. As an adult, because my vision started to fail, I wanted to continue to be as independent as possible and I saw learning Braille as one of those key things. Both my brother and I who suffer from the same eye condition decided to learn together as adults and hence the process was very quick due to that good old-fashioned sibling rivalry. In 2007 being able to read Braille enabled me to read a Bible verse at my brother's wedding, to stand up at the lectern in the church, face the congregation, have them be able to see my face and hear my words as I read Braille. That to me was a powerful moment. I hadn't been able to deliver speeches or anything like that through high school with notes. I had to do it without notes because the whole presentation would have looked horrible and nobody would have heard a single word I said because I would have been hiding behind a magnifier in a piece of paper or a book. Braille enables you to be at an even playing field with your sighted contemporaries. enables you to face your audience, to look at them, so to speak. It's enabled me to participate in Toastmasters, As an equal, without Braille, I wouldn't be able to do all the jobs that I can do that you are required to do within a Toastmasters club. And I received each challenge I was given with enthusiasm, anticipation and worked out how to do it. And nine times out of ten, Braille was part of that resolution. It's enabled me to stay employed. So if anyone ever said to me, did I think it was worth teaching low vision children or adults braille, my answer is 100% yes. It's another tool in the toolbox of many tools that we have to enable us to be independent. And why just because someone has a little bit of sight, should they be denied access to that tool that can keep them independent if, for whatever reason, their sight level does diminish. Reality is, most of those that I went to school with who were low vision have lost their sight or had sight reduction. So hence, I'm a 100% advocate for Braille. I love it and I would encourage anybody, adult or 
child to give it a go. That is one fantastic message. Thank you, Carolyn. I hope it gives encouragement to those who have been thinking about learning Braille and thinking maybe it is too late for me. And of course, it's true what they say. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. And no matter what age you are, it is never too late to grab the gift of Braille and the gift of literacy. So well done. And while we're on the subject of Braille, a news story that caught my attention in recent times, there is a push in the District of Columbia in the United States to help, it says here, children with visual impairments learn Braille at an early age. D.C. Council Member Brandon Todd has introduced the Blind Parents Literacy and Education Rights Act of 2018. The bill looks to improve Braille education standards in students' individualised education programmes, or IEPs. The bill would require the IEPs of visually impaired students to have standards for Braille instruction, materials that can be reproduced in Braille, and teachers who are certified in accordance with Braille literacy standards. Children are entitled to learn in the least restrictive environment, Todd said, during the council meeting. Sean Colloway, who is president of the National Federation of the Blind of the District of Columbia, helped put the bill together. He said many children with visual impairments rely only on visual aids to help them read print when they're young. Colloway said that can create problems when kids grow older and capable of reading Braille. Often Braille is not given to them because they have a little bit of sight, he said. But once their sight goes, they're adults and they're behind the eight ball. Colloway added that there is a correlation between the lack of Braille usage among a person who is visually impaired and whether they are unemployed. According to Todd's office, DCPS does have an existing Braille education program, but residents have told the council member it isn't promoted adequately and that it has gaps. Always good to see pro-Braille legislation making its way through any legislature. Let's go to Eno in Wisconsin and hear from Bill Golick, who says, hello, Mr. Mosin. Well, hello, Mr. Golick. Nice to have you right in. As I listened to your most recent Blind Side podcast, I decided I must post to you to applaud your decision regarding Facebook. Also, I've been wanting to delete my Facebook account only to find it nearly impossible as a totally blind person. I've regretted signing up for that service within a few months of originally creating my account in 2008. As such, I have likewise not been influenced by the mob mentality as you described in your podcast. To sunny Florida we go where the oranges come from, among other things. The dimple chads used to come from there too, but hopefully they got the they got the dimple chads under control now, right? Gail Christian, hi Gail. She says, I totally agree with your stand. I have never subscribed to Facebook and now I am so glad I chose not to. Good to hear from you, Gail. One thing I have noticed, by the way, and it wasn't something I had anticipated, although I had read about it elsewhere, is that since not being on Facebook, I feel better. I worked out that I'm one of those people who sort of channels a lot of energy from people. So if I read a lot of anger and hostility and things, it definitely does affect me. And I found that on Facebook, there is a lot of this, you know, people just ranting about very trivial things. And I found that I was absorbing that. And now that I'm not on Facebook, what's happened is that the people who are in my life that I really care about friends that I want to maintain friendships with, I'm texting a lot more 
because I know I'm not going to see their Facebook posts about what they're up to. So I'll send them a text or even give them a call and say, hi, friend, what are you up to? What a cool concept. Yes, Jonathan. Uh, my name is Mark, and I'm in Los Angeles, California. I have started looking into cryptocurrency and found some wallets and such are accessible using iOS and VoiceOver on the Mac. I was wondering if you could... Uh, Talk about hardware wallets that might be accessible to the blind. I feel that crypto is becoming a mainstream current topic and would like to get a head start on accessibility for this type of thing. Nice to hear from you, Mark. Now, there are nice oranges in California too, right? Because I don't want to kind of um, get into a rivalry. If I mention Florida oranges, I got to mention California oranges too, right? And Idaho potato. Oh, nobody's called me from Idaho. And, and Omaha steak. Oh, where does it end? Well, it probably ends right now with me answering your question. And I can't. I don't have any information on this at all. I don't know anything about this. I have, like you, dabbled in a little bit of the cryptocurrency stuff in iOS and taken a look at um, Bitcoin and similar wallet technology on iOS. But I have not had a look at any hardware solution. So let's open up the forum. If you have any knowledge of cryptocurrency and you'd like to comment on how you're using it, how accessible it is, and to what extent you believe the industry is aware of accessibility needs, by all means, be in touch. The details, of course, the blind side at mosin.org is the email address. And you can give us a call on the feedback line at 719-270-5114. That's in the United States. 719-270-5114. Hello, Jonathan Mosin. My name is Robert E. Lee. I'm out of Denver, Colorado uh, in the United States. Recently started listening to the Blind Side and, and really enjoying your take on uh, blindness issues. I've just listened to your commentary on person-first language, and my opinion on this is that when you're speaking of an individual person, I believe person-first language is appropriate. When you're speaking about my son and him uh, being on the autism spectrum disorder, ASD, then I agree that he is my son first. He is an individual himself who happens to suffer from, uh, from ASD, from autism. And when I came across that knowledge of saying, why are you referring to your child as my autistic child versus this is your child first, and the autism does not define them. And then as I've been experiencing the National Federation of Blind saying blindness is not what defines you, it brought home the fact that person-first language, when describing me as an individual, is not the defining factor. Now, listening to your conversation and your opinion, as the dawning realization is when we are defining a group by the disability, defining the disability first makes sense. So when a law or a policy is appropriate for people with blindness, then you would say, this is a law for blind people. Um, 
This is a law for disabled people. This is this applies for a group of people. When you're talking about footballers or um, rugby players or African Americans, then you are describing groups of people, and therefore the label comes first rather than the individual. But I, I think person first is appropriate and has its place. So definitely when I'm talking about my neighbor, what is the point of my conversation? Is it the fact that we are describing the, uh, the disability as the focus of the conversation, or is the person the focus of the conversation? When I'm speaking about a, uh, a couple who may be lesbian, or speaking about my cousin who happens to be a soccer player, then what is the point of the conversation? Is the focus that, oh, 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 you mentioned something. Oh, let me tell you about this person. Oh, he happens to be my cousin, but the important part of the conversation is that he's the soccer player, and since soccer is what we're talking about. Whereas if we're talking about this is my child, and oh, by the way, he happens to have autism, or am I talking about um, uh, the point of the conversation is, is well, as, as far as autism goes, I, I do have a close personal knowledge of that subject because my child has that, you know. Um, so as I'm coming to terms with my retinitis pigmentosa over the decades that I've had diagnosis and my vision is getting much more worse, much more severe, and it is no longer visually impaired, but I am now becoming blind, I certainly do understand um, first-person language and that it does not define me, and by placing that label on me first does define me. But in the same way that we talk about doctors, and we pronounce that first, this is doctor so-and-so, um, lo and behold, uh, that's not person-first language, is it? So interesting how our language defines ourselves, and words are very powerful. Thanks, Robert. And since you mentioned the National Federation of the Blind, I did try and do a quick search on their site because they have passed a resolution at their convention, in my view, rightly so, some time back, I believe it was in the 1990s, in which they stood up against the use of person-first language. And I won't repeat my arguments because people can go back into uh, the previous episodes and hear that. But I thought it might be handy to read the resolution. Unfortunately, I can't find the specific resolution on person-first language that is on the NFB's books from some time ago. There are, however, some interesting articles in the Braille Monitor, which is the NFB's official publication, on why person-first language is not a good idea. And if you're interested, and anyone else who's listening is interested in that subject, I highly recommend that you search the NFB's site and read those articles. They're very good reading. But I really appreciate you taking the time to share an alternative perspective. That's really great. And I do wonder whether there may be a difference with a lot of these issues between the perspective of someone who's been blind from birth, as I have been, and the perspective of somebody who has become blind later in life. I mean, we may just have a difference of perspective on this, and that's fine. But there may be that factor at play as well. To the United Kingdom we go, and we hear from Chris Cook. Hi, Chris. He has drawn my attention to an article about Amit Patel. Now, he is the blind guy that we spoke to a few episodes ago in the UK who has a camera attached to his guide dog's harness. And he videos what happens. And then if anything interesting happens, and it seems that it does quite often, he will publish that video and draw attention to it. 
Well, Chris says that he's read this article in The Standard about Emmett. All this has happened since we spoke to Emmett on the blind side. To praise the article from The Standard, it says that a blind man said he was reduced to tears after commuters on a rush hour southeastern train refused to give him a seat in the designated disabled section. Amit Patel, 37, the article continues, who became blind five years ago from a hemorrhage behind his eyes, was travelling to Waterloo East on Tuesday, and this uh, article comes from late March, with his guide dog Kika. But he was forced to stand against the doors while Kika looked miserable balancing on her back haunches. Mr. Patel said Kika was shy and upset afterwards while he felt humiliated to the point of tears. Mr. Patel said he was saddened. No one had the kindness or decency to offer him a seat. Southeastern has apologised for Mr. Patel's ordeal and said clearer priority seat signage is currently being rolled out across all its trains that do not already have it. Now, in Chris's email, which he sent to me during my attention to this article, he says, This is a common problem that I often experience as well as I travel into London and to work on similar trains to Emmett. I think this is another sign of how difficult life can be as a blind person trying to safely navigate and get about independently on public transport, and also how unsympathetic members of the general public can be. Is it sheer ignorance or just sheer belligerence that no one would give up their seat for him. We are in 2018 and not 1918, aren't we? I'd like to have a discussion about this, and I don't intend to be judgmental of anyone's situation, but I would like to ask this question because I think it is an important question, and it really boils down to this. Isn't it the responsibility of the agencies that provide us with services such as orientation and mobility and blindness adjustment and then on us as individuals who receive those services to absorb that training so that we can get about as independently and safely as possible while insisting on the accommodations that we absolutely should have but without relying on accommodations that we don't really need and therefore may be counterproductive. What I'm getting at is, if you are fully able-bodied other than the fact that your eyes don't work, so you've managed to get to the train yourself, you've found the train to catch, you then get on the train. If the train is full, what is it about you being a blind person that should require somebody to give up a seat for you? Now, we know that a lot of blind people are elderly, and so they may have difficulty standing for long periods. There are blind people who are parents as well, and they are traveling with their kids. And I know Emmett does this from time to time. So I don't want to make this about him. I'm really just sort of teasing out the general principle here and would welcome your views on this. If you are a pretty fit blind person, why should somebody give up a seat for you? I don't really expect anybody to give up a seat for me. I'm happy to stand and hold on to the rail and and whatever, because I don't think that my blindness prevents me from standing. Now, clearly, there's a finite number of seats on any crowded mode of public transport. And so there's a possibility that a blind person who doesn't really have to sit down, who doesn't have any additional disabilities and who's in good health, might be depriving somebody who really would be better off with the seat. Maybe a mother with a pram stroller. Maybe an expectant mum. 
maybe somebody who really does have genuine difficulty standing. The reason why I raise this is that if we do take accommodations that we don't really need because we think, oh, it's a drag to stand on this bus or this train for a long period when somebody should give up their seat for me because I'm blind, it sends a signal and those signals do have repercussions. The people on that train or on that bus may be a potential employer, maybe for you in the future, or they might have the opportunity to employ another blind person in the future. Now, we know, don't we, how often we come into contact with sighted people who think that because we're blind, we can't possibly zip up and down the stairs. When we take an accommodation that we actually don't really need, I believe we're setting a kind of a karma in place that we may pay for that down the track by people having inaccurate images of what blind people are capable of. We have similar discussions from time to time here in New Zealand, for example, about whether it's right and appropriate and even moral for a blind person who has a sighted spouse or a car and a sighted assistant who drives it to have access to a disability permit. Some people say you're perfectly capable of walking any distance you like, your legs aren't broken. Don't use that permit to kind of play the blind card so you can get closer somewhere when you really have no need to. And in a way, I think that this issue of the mobility parking permit may be similar to the issue that we're discussing now. So there may be a disability section in the train because there needs to be additional space to safely accommodate a wheelchair, for example. And I totally get that, that you might take a few seats out of certain carriages so that the wheelchair can comfortably fit in. But does that really apply to a blind person? Would be very interested in your thoughts. The number is 719-270-5114 in the United States. That's 719-270-5114. You can also email either with an audio attachment or by writing it down. I will read it in Braille. The Blind Side at Mosin.org. It's time to hear from this week's featured guest on The Blind Side. On a previous episode of The Blind Side, some time ago now, we spoke with Pam McNeil from Disability Responsiveness New Zealand. And in a Mosin consulting capacity, it's been a pleasure for us to help Disability Responsiveness New Zealand as it's matured as a company and offered new services. We did the website initially, and now we've expanded that website with e-commerce functionality, which Pam is using to great effect. So I thought it would be good to have Pam back in the studio, and she can tell us about some of the things that DRNZ, as we like to call it, is offering. So Pam, good to have you back. Welcome. Thank you, Jonathan. It's lovely to be back. How are things going with running your own company and all of the fun and the stress that goes with that? Oh, well, wonderful. It's uh, time to go and meet the accountant and do the (laughs) annual thing that one does and pay one's taxes. But other than that, it's absolutely fine. I'm waiting for a a big piece of work to come in at the moment. So um, it's good because it's giving me a chance to to get some publications and things up on the website and get some other things done as well in my personal life, gearing up because I'm going to be very busy very soon. Regarding publications, one of the first that you put up there really interested me. This is a frustration for many of us where you go to a meeting. And do you know what the irony is? Often you go to a meeting where the people at the meetings should jolly well know better. It is incredible how often you go to a meeting that is involving disabled people. It's supposed to be inclusive. And you find that really they haven't thought about 
how to make the material that accompanies that meeting or the actual proceedings of the meeting itself inclusive and accessible. So you've got a publication that advises on this. Yes, I have. It's called Making Your Meetings Accessible and Inclusive. And there are publications out there like this, but the difference with the one that we've produced is that ours is is fairly brief and to the point. Um, It's 10 pages long. And in that 10 pages, it packs a whole lot of information about um, things like venue accessibility, signage, lighting, um, meeting room layout, audio-visual things to look out for, um, access for um, deaf, for blind, for people with um, a range of disabilities, including people who are deafblind, um, and general information about how to assist people, um, There's a a quick reference guide and there's also a little one-pager about document accessibility. Just the real basics, things like making sure that your font is a reasonable size, that it's a good clear font, that it's uh, got heading styles and things that will help people to navigate the document. And as we all know, that makes an an enormous difference to us. I received a document to read the other day, which was nearly 200 pages long. And I needed to get the gist of that document very quickly to be able to talk um, with some, uh, you know, sense, I suppose, uh, at a meeting. And I thought, gosh, you know, I've only just got this. And you know what it's like when you're blind, you always get your documents at the last minute because being sighted, a lot of people just think that we can flick through it the same as they. Well, of course, if it's got heading styles marked up and it's done properly, yes, you can because you can go to the nub of the document, um, extract the, the things that you really need. And uh, some of these things, as we know, are quite simple, but it's always complicated when it comes to uh, people who are not blind trying to understand. They feel that it's it's very complex when it really isn't. So the, the making your meetings accessible and inclusive tries to, and I think succeeds really well, um, to give people a whole lot of tools in a very simple format and a quick format and something that they can dip into and look at when they need to set up a meeting. And it's relevant for meetings up to about 70 people. After that, um, things change because when you're at a really big conference uh, where you may have disabled people, there are other considerations. And so the document also includes some links to other documents that are useful if you're uh, looking to run a, a bigger meeting. When you were writing this, I'm curious about whether you contemplated the extent to which there are things that are always true and then there are things that shift, the goalposts shift because of technological change. For example, I suppose that if a blind person has the wherewithal, the technology and the skills to use the technology, they could now, for example, snap a picture of the whiteboard using, say, KNFB Reader or an app like Seeing AI or Prismo Go and have access to the information, even if it hadn't been rendered accessible. But that does, I suppose, still set a high bar. Absolutely. And what I've tried to do, because I wanted to keep this document readable and and condensed and small, because I just know that when I look at a really large technical type of document, it's so off-putting, I'd shove it in a drawer, really, um, even if it's only in my mind. So um, I wanted to keep this really simple, so I have made it fairly high level. Uh, it will require updating from time to time, but I haven't drilled down into detail. 
So what is the responsibility of the provider of the meeting or the, the hoster of the meeting versus the responsibility of the attendee to use the tools that are now at our disposal to try and ease things or speed things up a little? I think there are responsibilities on both sides. Um, first of all, I've made the point in the document that when you're organising a meeting or a, or a small conference, you don't always know who's going to walk in the door, who has um, impairments of one sort or another. For example, there might be people who come in who are seniors uh, who are experiencing vision loss or hearing loss that they don't even themselves admit to themselves, but they do experience those things nevertheless. So at times you need to ensure, or always you need to ensure that their uh, meeting is as, as accessible as possible. But then, and I also make the point about three times in the document that you must ask the people who are attending, just like you'd ask them what their dietary needs are, whether they have any uh, needs for audio, visual or, or whatever, you know, just ask them what their needs are in general. But I think as people attending such meetings, it behooves us as well to make sure that we let meeting organisers know that we're bringing a service animal or that we have particular needs to sit in a particular part of the room to use the hearing loop or whatever. So I think there are responsibilities on both sides. But I think that having, if I think about it from a consumer's point of view, having advised a meeting organiser that we need a certain modification that's usually going to be pretty simple. And mostly we know how to tell them how to do it as well. Um, when you turn up and they haven't done it, <laughs> that's not really acceptable. So I think there are definitely rights on both sides where people need to, or responsibilities on both sides where people need to advise um, what they need and for the organisers to ensure that they provide that. And as blind people, we think about accessibility of documentation a lot. But one of the things that sometimes gets overlooked is that it's not always obvious how people at these meetings are signalling their intention to speak. And so sometimes a blind person wonders, well, are people just standing up and talking? Are they raising their hands and being nodded at? What's actually going on here? And that can act as a disincentive, as a barrier for someone to try and participate and, and speak up. That's right. One of the things that I have talked about in the document under general advice is that where there are volunteers available, and there should be if there are going to be people, uh, disabled people at the meeting, um, but even if they're not, having a couple of volunteers is always really useful because if you've ever organised a, a conference or a meeting, there's always things, you have to be in three places at once. So having a couple of, of well-trained, good, reliable volunteers is, is a must. I think giving them some basic information about disability responsiveness including, I think I give the example in the guidelines, you know, a blind person might want to uh, speak to a, a person at the meeting, but of course they don't know how to find them. So, you know, that's something where a volunteer would be able to find that person for them, ensure that that conversation happens. So um, I think really it's just it's just got to be part of what you do. When you organise a meeting, you've got volunteers you ensure that those volunteers have some basic, well, that they're common sense people to start with, that's really crucial, but then that they have some basic responsiveness training. I was recently at a conference where there were volunteers, it was a disability conference, there were volunteers who had 
apparently been trained to work with disabled people and to ensure that we were getting where we needed to go, etc. And I had a sighted person with me, but there were about three blind people there who just were not getting the assistance. And in the end, the, the person that was with me um, went and said something to them because they were volunteers. They were supposed to be there to help. And every time these blind people walked in the room, they just about ran away. It was weird. <laughs> now, when I was thinking about the target audience for this publication, and initially I thought about the kind of health and disability sector and those meetings where blind and other disabled people are going to be attending. But it's much more than that, isn't it? Because this is about blind people feeling comfortable about participating in in any meeting. Yeah, it's a universal design approach to organising any meeting, including anyone with any kind of disability. And so your target audience is is really broad. Would you Mm. recommend that, for example, people who run into some trouble at a meeting, maybe they go to a meeting and they've had a less than satisfactory experience, maybe referring people to your publication uh, for some schooling up would ensure that this experience isn't repeated in the future, for instance. I think so. I mean, it is high level and it is condensed and fairly brief, but at the same time, it's something that people will feel, I think, quite quite happy about dipping into anyone who organises any sort of meeting could benefit from having a copy uh, and it will give them enough information that if they are unsure about a specific set of circumstances that it would give them I think the confidence to ask for more information. Mm. Uh, It is high level but again having worked in the responsiveness area for a lot of years I know that most people who are not familiar with disability and disability issues, are quite fearful. And this document is trying to allay those fears and just give them enough information that they're going to feel confident about being inclusive. And and that's really what it's about. It's a fine line though, right? Because you also don't want people to be so overly sensitive and touchy-feely and Mm. things that it's just a kind of a cringeworthy experience when you just want to go and do your thing at a meeting. Absolutely, and that's why I've kept it really high level. I I started getting a bit detailed and and I realised that A, it was making the document far too long and B, I was kind of getting into that territory that you've just described and I don't want to go there and I don't think anyone really does. We've talked about empowerment a little bit and how we all have a responsibility to ensure that we have good self-advocacy skills, that we can gently and constructively point people in the right direction. And that really takes us nicely onto your second publication, which is uh, quite the masterpiece. It's quite lengthy. (laughs) Yeah, it's called Motivation Towards Empowerment. And the guidelines have been written for anyone with a personal or professional interest in the disability sector. So if you're personally a disabled person or you work in the disability sector, Motivation Towards Empowerment is really broad. Um, Again, I looked at it several times about how I was going to do this. What I've done is produce a, a, a very high-level overarching document, but I may later on um, look at producing modules from it that are more specific and more focused. But I wanted to provide people with something that was going to be useful, whether you were disabled, whether you were working with someone or had a family member, about empowerment, about positivity. So, for example, it's uh, the document is in six parts. Um, The first part talks a lot about unconditional positive regard. 
Now, that's been around a long time. What it really says is it doesn't actually matter if your uh, brother with autism comes to you and says, oh, well, I'm going to be, you know, a rocket scientist. The worst thing you can do is to say, oh, be realistic. Don't be silly. You couldn't do that. That is really damaging. And I've certainly experienced that as a young person myself. So I know how damaging it can be. Unconditional positive regard says, take people at face value, work with them to towards whatever it is they want to do to empower themselves. And you know what? Along the way, everyone changes their mind about their end point because experience teaches you that perhaps the path's slightly different. I mean, heck, I started my professional life as a social worker and I'm not there now, although you can see where I got the unconditional positive regard from. I think it's a very powerful tool, though. So that's there's a lot about that and things like the UN Convention and you know the difference between impairment and disability. A lot of it is, and it's called basics you should know in part one, and that's the reason, because they are basic things. And although we're all, I think, bet people listening to this podcast really familiar with those basic things a lot of people just aren't so it's good to have them there um just before we go into the second part mm. I, I i kind of wish there was a couch in the studio so i could get on it and you know confess my sins or something because uh, your talk about unconditional positivism reminds me of a terrible thing um when i was a kid we had a vocational guidance counselor who came to talk to the blind kids about what they would like to do. And one of the kids at that group who was totally blind said that they wanted to be an astronomer. Mm -hmm. And all the other blind kids, myself included, laughed and teased this kid mercilessly mm -hmm. about why the hell would you as a blind kid have any opportunity to be an astronomer, you know, and just don't be so ridiculous. You know, you can't see through a telescope, you can't look at the stars. And of course, much later, I met and worked with Kent Cullis, who was a uh, NASA uh, astronomer who was totally blind, who was involved with the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And I thought about that conversation and how, you know, we, we, we probably, you know, stomped on this kid's dream through mm. sheer ignorance and stupidity. I can go you one slightly better than that. I had an IQ test at the age of 11. And I said exactly the same because astronomy was my absolute first, that and music were my first loves. And the person doing the IQ test laughed at me. And they were an adult, yeah. so it was a lot worse. Mm. Um, I, I listen to podcasts and stuff about astronomy and, and probably know a reasonable amount about it, but it, it's still a passion. And I'm really pleased to hear that there is actually somebody working for NASA who's blind. That's fantastic. I'm there are follow a number of blind people working for NASA, fantastic. actually. Um, and I interviewed another one quite re well, maybe a year or two ago on FSCast. So uh, that that's in the FSCast archives as well. But there are a number of blind people in quite significant roles. This guy was working on the new rocket project that Whoa. will hopefully eventually send us to Mars. So it, it is really, it is really wonderful. But yeah, we we can just we can be just as hard on our own as it were. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, yeah. Totally. All right. So what else is in the in the document? Okay. So part two is t talks about working with those you support to achieve a rich life, and that sounds really simple and straightforward and something that everybody um, does and can expect. But for a lot of disabled people, that isn't the case, particularly um, people with learning disabilities. Now, just for listeners outside New Zealand. Um, we have a, a 
advocacy group here called People First, and People First is a group of people with learning disabilities. That is the term they like to use themselves. Lots of people um, used to call this group of people people with intellectual impairments. Um, they don't like that term, so I tend to use learning disabilities as well because that's the, the term they've chosen for themselves. Um, so with people with learning disabilities often do not have choices about what they're going to do. No one really asks them what they want and where they want to go and where they want to finish up and, and all those sort of things. So part two is really about life tasks, I suppose you'd say, um, as opposed to the next couple of sections. For example, um, part three is about tertiary study. So what have you wanted to do tertiary study? Is it community college, polytechnic, university? What happens about how do you enrol? How do you manage in class? Again, fairly high level look, and I'm going to, um, I think I will produce some more specific uh, detail about some of this later, but it's to get people thinking and to get people to look at what their dreams are, not what they think I'm sort of suggesting to them. Mm. Part four is all about employment and it's about um, some pitfalls that we have to problem solving. You know, we're all great problem solvers, um, us disabled people, and we generally are, but there are some pitfalls. For example, if we, what I ask people to do in the in the book is to Imagine where you want to be and then look at how you want to get there rather than do this day-to-day problem-solving stuff because it can it can really put a shackle around our leg to the point where we're so busy solving everyday problems we're actually never getting to the end point. So um, there's lots of things in there about self-employment, about working for other people, um, how to look for jobs and all that kind of thing. And I know, Jonathan, that Bonnie has produced um, something, and I think that these would be quite complementary to right. each other. Yeah. Um, part five is about action planning. And as part of this publication, um, DRNZ have developed a life action planning tool. And so that's really what's in there. We've look at life uh, planning what we want in our lives and how to do it. And it's it's a series of um, tables that people can use to plan various aspects of their life. Um, and then there's a, an appendix at the end which just gives some further advice and some more information about DRNZ products and services. So it's very comprehensive. Yeah. You're talking about tertiary studies, interesting, because that is an area that really has changed a lot. I mean, mm. I remember in the, the 80s, you know, the early 80s, people were still – recording lectures and brailing the notes afterwards. That sounds like me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, by the time I made it to university, uh, they let me loose with one of the keynote products and I was taking my notes with that and it mm. was great. But we've just moved on. All the oh. texts now that are available electronically probably means that we don't depend as much as we used to on the human reader. But these days you could probably get through, a lot of people could get through university without using a human reader, I would think. When I did my master's degree, which I finished in 2006, um, I got through the entire process by using web-based resources. Mm. So I never had a reader. Um, and when I was pre- previous to that in the 80s when I was at university, I had readers who were my classmates. I was very lucky, but I didn't have a source of other readers. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know yeah. what went wrong between your experience and mine. Well, I advertised for mine. I'd, oh, have a, okay. I'd have a poster with big 
sort of friendly letters on the notice board at university that would say something like, can you read? <laughs> and, and large friendly letters on the cover. And then um, the small print was, if so, then, you know, I'm a blind person. I'm looking for people who will read oh, material yes. and I- contact me. And it was quite good. I mean, I actually made lifelong friendships from that process. You know, people I still am in touch with. Well, I had a, a, a um, research assistant when I was doing my master's. and that, mm, Me too. I had yeah. several who were absolutely dreadful, but I had this one woman who now works for Radio New Zealand, actually, and I really must write her an email and thank her because, gosh, she was great. She was just really on the money. And I was just laughing to myself, Jonathan, because I remembered a time when um, there was a little organisation we looked at setting up, um, and I think it, was, it turned out to be the letters made up with swab, uh, I think you named it Students What Are Blind. <laughs> Do you remember that? <laughs> no, I don't, but it sounds like something I would have come oh. up with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because we were trying at that time to get a lot more resource into that area and just well, and for computers, apart from anything else, because back then um, not everyone had access to computers. But yes, you're right, the, the, everything is changing. And I'm about to embark on a PhD and I'm really looking forward to it. And the reason I'm looking forward to it, everybody thinks I'm a bit weird, but the reason I'm looking forward to it is because I know it's completely accessible for me now. I don't say the enrolment process will be, and I've been warned it probably isn't, because apparently you go in on a portal that's a bit iffy, but I am going to have sighted assistance there. Um, But Access to reading materials and everything is just so much more accessible. So it's it's going to be great. I'm going to feel really good about it. I'll yes. probably get frustrated along the way, but at least I can access things. Oh, it's important that we track um, the progress we still have to make, but also it's nice sometimes to step back and say, man, we have actually come a long way and some really good things have happened. Absolutely. Yeah. Your uh, content here, how does that work in an international context? Because uh, as we've talked about on the podcast in recent times, New Zealand has really dispensed with the people first language for the most part yeah. uh, in public policy. It's always blind people, disabled people. I remember you uh, about 30 years ago shoving, <laughs> I knew a, you were gonna do this. shoving a publication at me. <laughs> Called Words Matter. See, oh. I, n- I never got into the person first language, but are you I, Irish? You the, never forget. No, no. <laughs> I, Words Matter. It was called. Yes, and and it was all about you know how how it was insensitive to not use person first language. So how how have you how have you coped with that transition and the general consensus? Oh, that- I discovered the social model, I suppose. Um, and and you know the social model's got its critics too. I've, I've heard people sort of run it down and say, oh, the social model's no good. If it worked, it would have worked by now, but actually I don't think it's quite that simple. Um, I discovered the social model and I realise now that actually what are the barriers that we face to employment, to accessing websites and whatnot, it's the barriers that are disabling us. You know, we don't have to be fixed. And I get really quite annoyed when people, especially in the medical profession, um, if they can't fix you, they kind of just don't want to know you because, you know, but you might be there about your appendix, not your eyesight, (laughs) right? So, um, but yeah, I discovered the social model. That's the really quick answer. And I am really happy to to identify as a disabled person, as a blind person, whatever. Um, I suppose, though, if I look at my... um, if I put my social justice cap on, I would probably have to say, first of all, 
Justice for Women is probably still closest to my heart. But that's probably because of the injustice that happens um, against women every day, and particularly disabled women. Yeah. So, yeah, but certainly disability is right up there. So just to explore that social model, what you were saying, for those not familiar with this concept, is that when we talk about being a disabled person, we're saying that we are disabled by the environment around us. It's not not a reflection on some condition we have. Mm. It's the fact that society has disabled us. That's right. Whereas if we say a person with a disability, what we're actually saying is we're, we're putting the blame, as it were, on us. Absolutely. And it's really, really critical to get that point across. And it's hard. I mean, I just said before, I'm starting a PhD. One of my supervisors wants me to look at um, the World Health Organization classification of um, functioning. And of course, I refuse to because that's not what it's about. I do obviously want to do work with disabled people who are unemployed and employed to look at, you know, barriers and things. But it is the barriers I want to examine and find solutions to those barriers. I don't want to find a solution to someone's blindness or someone's being in a wheelchair. I want to find a solution to the barriers they face. Um, And that's kind of the crux of it, really. Do you think, though, that... Obviously, we're very much committed to this kind of language in New Zealand. And there was a a wide open consultation process quite a long time ago now. And the government got the message loud and clear. We don't want the person first language in general. Um, But that might make it harder for you if you're trying to get this material into the hands of people overseas where the viewpoint appears to be different. Yeah, I I tried to write both publications, as I've said, at at a fairly high level, so not to get into too much detail and technicality. I have used disabled people. I have used that terminology, and I I guess all I can do is is to to say I'm really sorry if that offends anyone. It's not meant to be offensive, and it's not meant to take anything away from anybody. It's really just saying, as you said before, Jonathan, that the, the disability is about the environment and about people's attitudes critically. It's, it's attitudes that are probably the worst barrier, uh, negative attitudes that is. Um, and that is why the terminology disabled people. So it's not actually meant to get at anybody in that sense. Now, we've really enjoyed at Mosin Consulting helping you and watching the business grow, and it's been a great experience. How have you found that personally? Because I think you're, you're one of those people who, who knows this subject inside out, and some of us are kind of people who just totally geek out on the technology and we kind of just, just are thrilled to play with it and come to grips with it. And some people just want to use the damn thing as a tool, and when it misbehaves, it's frustrating <laughs> you have just described me. Right, right. I, I mean, am and, not a geek. And, and I think that that's the case for most people. Most yeah. people just want this stuff to go, right? Yeah. How Can you tell me about the, some of the experiences you've come up against as a, a blind person getting a new business up and running? Well, I, I approached it all with a lot of enthusiasm because the whole time when I was um, doing my last two-year fixed-term contract, every meeting I went to, I was was something happened at the meeting that made me write a little note in, in my braille note to say, remember to do that when you set your own business up. Remember this aspect. You know, everything kept pushing me towards starting DRNZ. And, and as you said before, now it's been incorporated as a limited liability company. Mm-hmm. So it's all serious. Um, 
I was really worried about the technological side of things. I knew I had to have a website. I knew I eventually had to have a shopping cart on the website. uh, And I knew that I really didn't know anything about this stuff. And I started out thinking, well, you know, maybe I need to learn all this. But I I realised, particularly listening to your podcast, Jonathan, and other people's podcasts, and I thought, you guys live, sleep, eat and breathe this stuff. You know, that's how come you know it all so well. I don't have the time to do that and run a responsiveness company. So the best thing I can do is to knock on Jonathan's door. (laughs) (laughs) Oi, mate, can you help? Yeah, you're not too far away. (laughs) And No, and I the thing that I've absolutely cherished is being able to work with a professional who is also a disabled person. It's my business ethos is I will only employ disabled people. So what I've done... When I've had work on that has needed um, perhaps some some sighted eyes on it because of the formatting or whatever, or somebody to do a big table that I'm not very good at, um, I've got a couple of other people in the country who don't want full-time work. They just want contract work. I'll contract with them. They're disabled people, um, and that's my model. That's how I want to work because having, you know, spent years of, of my life being unemployed when I was younger, it's very close to my heart providing employment. And I think that there are some disabled people who've got some fantastic skills, great Mm. professional presence. And I must say, and I'll embarrass you now, Jonathan, um, you know, if you want to hear this work, go to Jonathan, go to Mosin (laughs) Consulting, because I've been absolutely blown away by the standard and the timeliness of the work. Um, it's great to give the work to somebody who else who is disabled, but it's also great to give it to somebody who knows it, provides a pro- professional result, and that, <laughs> frankly, just lives not that far away. And I can, you know, email hassle and say, me. Jonathan, I can hassle him. Hassle you know, me, yeah. I can hassle. yeah. So well, it's I been great, and I'm going to continue to work um, with your company, Jonathan, because um, there are other things that are going to come up that I'm just. But I always feel embarrassed. I've got to say this, folks. It is embarrassing because you know I I will break something on the website which I have recently, and <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh no. So I'm trying to be curious. Uh, I'm trying to get in there in the back door and and jiggle about with things and and put new things on the website. And I'm doing a lot more than I was. I think you'll agree, mm, Jonathan, mm. Um, when you first set it up. But yeah, I'm still going to leave the big end of it to you <laughs> but we wrote you a manual. We, we do this um we write a manual for all of our website customers mm. when we draft a website when we put it together and obviously we um we do have sighted people uh, on our staff who check the visuals and we can design logos and things but when it's all done we do write a user guide that basically tells somebody how to administer their own site and they can do as much or as little as they like um but that's important because yeah then people are able to keep us in or out of the picture as much as they like. Yeah, that's right. And one thing that I would advise people to do, I mean, that was great for me because it gave me a a feeling of confidence to actually go in and have a look at things myself. Um, But you know what it's like. You you go onto a website and the way it was last week isn't necessarily the way it is this week because they've changed one little thing and it's tweaked your uh, accessibility or whatever. So... um, what I've done along the way is I've added to that, that that guidance that you gave me originally, and I would advise people to do that. As you get grow in confidence and go in there to, to put publish new content or whatever, if it's a website, you know, add your own notes because things will change, 
And if you don't keep up with it and go in there, you know, fairly regularly, it can be quite daunting. But yeah. Jonathan will rescue you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we get a lot of emails from um, people who are now saying, look, I would rather have a blind person do this. And I think this is a fantastic development. Um, people buy fair trade or they will buy based on a whole range of criteria. Exactly. Yeah. And to me, I think if we as disabled people can support other disabled people, um, not not just because they're disabled, but if they can provide you with a quality product mm. and it comes down to a choice, hopefully we can choose to support each other because goodness only knows it's it's pretty tough out there. I think so. We've got to walk the talk. I mean, that was the reason why I asked you to design and, and build the website because, you know, I'm working to, I guess, improve um, things for disabled people in terms of how others respond to us. And I wanted to make sure that I was walking the talk and that the website was ex as accessible as possible and also I wanted to make sure I could use it. Um, that's really important. If you ask someone else to, I've, I've known other blind business users, uh, business owners, sorry, who have employed other people and they've sort of explained to them, look, we need headings, we need everything labelled and all that, but it's still come out wrong. So And they've spent one heck of a lot of money to get a big mistake. So I wasn't going there. Yeah, it's most unfortunate. Mm. So tell me about uh, how much your products cost and where people can find them. Okay, so the website is www.drnz.co.nz. And from there, um, there are links to, well, there's about our, there's a, a link called About Our Workshops and Publications. So that's probably the easiest one to click on if you want to get a rundown on what we offer. Within New Zealand, um, DRNZ offers a couple of workshops. One's called Getting It Right, and that's a two-hour workshop that um, anyone can do, really. Anyone that works with disabled people, and as I say, that's all of us, right? Mm. Um, and it's a two-hour workshop. It costs $80 for people to attend that. And there are um, there's a freebie that they get with that. They get a copy of making your meetings accessible and inclusive okay. as a, a free thing that they can have. But they also get other um, handouts and things to take away. Um, there's another workshop that I run, and I am hoping to run it as a webinar, so I could do it internationally at some point. It's called Be Bold. And uh, I, I stole it from my last company, uh, which I had a consultancy going a few years ago, and I started working on this workshop then, but I've I've modified and refined it now. It's called Be Bold. It's a five-hour workshop. It's a capability and resilience building workshop for disabled people, uh, and it's a, it costs $130 per person, and everybody who attends gets a copy of the DRNZ Life Action Planning Tool uh, for free, so that's usually valued at $50. The two publications, Making Your Meetings Accessible and Inclusive, costs $19.50, and Motivation Towards Empowerment costs $59.50. And that is New Zealand dollars, so the good news is if you're you're living in the States or Australia or the UK, it's quite a bit cheaper. <laughs> yes, yes, it is quite a bit cheaper. And people can make that purchase and then download right away, correct? As Absolutely. Soon as yep, yep. So there's no, no waiting. No. All right, well, I hope you do get that uh, second workshop available online. I'm sure there'll be a lot of interest in that, so we'll uh, keep tabs on whether that happens and let people know. Yeah, I've, I've run it a few times, and I've had some very good feedback. Um, and all, I also meant to say the one another one that I do uh, over Skype is a personalised mentoring program, and that's an eight 
module program. It's one-to-one. And I and one of my uh, associates do that. Just depends where it is and who's available. Um, Normally I do them. And it's one-to-one, eight sessions. There's um, some tools and things that are given. There's a bit of homework for people. And it's a bit like the Be Bold workshop, but it's more one-to-one and there's a lot more to it. And that that costs $1,200 to do. It's um, quite a lot to set up, so there's a lot of work in between times. And there's also uh, an extra sort of helping with a standard letter and CV if people are looking for work, and we, we can help with that as well. That is super. So it's all there at dub dub dub, as all the cool kids say. Dub 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 dot drnz.co.nz. And it's great to have you back on the podcast. And um, we'll look forward to keeping in touch. Thanks, Jonathan. Great to be here. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at mosin.org.